0: Welcome to You Must Remember This: The Podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories. Of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. This is another episode of our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Last week, we discussed the production of The Last Picture Show, during which director Peter Bogdanovich fell in love with actress Sybil Shepard. Much to the dismay of Peter's wife and production designer, Polly Platt. After Peter finished editing the Last Picture show, he started calling Polly all the time to share with her his excitement over the buzz that was building for the film. The Last Picture show was the talk du jour around what was called the Bel Air Circuit, meaning the Hollywood power brokers who all watched movies in their private screening rooms in their Bel Air mansions. Against her better judgment, Polly allowed herself to believe that the fact that Peter was calling her to process all of this meant that there was hope for rebuilding their marriage. But Peter was living at the Sunset Tower Hotel and would soon move into his own mansion in Bel Air, in both locations. His companion was Sybil Shepard. Through the making of The Last Picture Show, Polly had become friends with Ellen Burstyn, who played Sybil's character's mother and romantic rival in the movie. Burstyn would be nominated for her first Oscar for the film at the age of 40. At the time, Burstyn was in the process of untangling from her third husband... Neil, a schizophrenic and LSD casualty, who had assaulted her. She was also raising a son she had adopted during her previous marriage. On the set of Picture Show, Burstyn had bonded with the rest of the actors, especially Cloris Leachman, whose husband had just left her for a much younger woman. And when Peter was off with Sybil, Polly had joined Cloris and Ellen's running party at the Ramada Inn. One day back in L.A., Ellen and her son, and Polly and her two young daughters, went together to the beach.
2: We watched the three children playing in the sand. Antonia was hitting Sashi in the head with a plastic shovel, and I started screaming at her to stop it. Ellen looked at me, my face all twisted up with frustrated anger, and said, "'Darling, don't you know you can't raise two children alone without wine in the afternoon?' I laughed, but I tried it, and it did take the edge off the yelling and screaming and endless boredom of caretaking without any intellectual conversation. I began to buy white wine. Every day around four in the afternoon, I would sit in my empty living room, sip my wine, and drift off to nowhere land. The din of the ruckus of the children literally went quieter. I dreamt of a job, working on a good movie.
0: Polly's wine-drunk afternoon dreams would come true, in that she would soon get jobs working on good movies. But like any dream, sometimes these jobs defied logic and plausibility. Other times, they put her in personal situations that ranged from previously unfathomable to hopelessly uncomfortable. And finally, untenable. Today, we are going to talk about how Polly Platt began establishing a career as a production designer while also juggling single motherhood, sexual harassment, addiction, and other minefields of 1970s Hollywood. We'll talk about three legendary films on which Polly worked alongside her now ex-husband, Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind, and Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up, Doc, and Paper Moon. Join us, won't you? For part four of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. With some help from Peter, Polly would soon buy a house perched on Outpost Drive in the Hollywood Hills. The place was big enough for Polly and the two girls and for the nanny to have her own room in case Polly had to go work on location. For the first year of Polly's life as a single mom, she had live-in help in the form of Frank Marshall, who moved out of his parents' house and into Polly's spare bedroom to lend a helping hand. Was Peter upset that his assistant had gone to live with his estranged wife?
3: Uh, no. Actually, I think he might have been relieved that somebody was there, um... He was over in the sunset t- sunset towers, I guess, yeah, with Sybil. uh but you know i was I was outraged but <laughs> but we we're still all working together with this crazy thing and you now looking back at it.
0: Frank's loyalty to Polly was all the more remarkable because with Peter gone, she was incredibly lonely, as her daughter Sashi recalls.
2: My mom always said that what was really, really hard about the divorce part
0: of it was she didn't have any friends. You know, all the friends were Jerry Lewis and John Ford. Polly expected all of the great men of Hollywood to stay friends with Peter and forget about her. Many fulfilled that expectation, but one exception was Orson Welles. Wells and his mistress, Oya Kodar, whom Polly had met when the two couples had been in Rome, were now in carefree Arizona, getting ready to shoot his passion project, The Other Side of the Wind.
2: Orson and Oya had of course met Sybil with Peter and knew all about my shattered marriage. Orson roared through the telephone line, Come and work for me! I was more than grateful. I drove out to Orson's enormous house in Carefree and was warmly greeted by him and Oya. Orson was wearing a huge white terry cloth robe and bedroom slippers, even though it was the middle of the day. He immediately set me to work. My first job was to go to the grocery store and buy three pounds of top of the round beef with all the fat cut off and ground three times. Orson was going to make dinner for me, his famous steak tartare of which he was very proud. He would fix this gigantic serving of steak tartare, adding olive oil and spices to it, and mashing it around in a great big bowl with his own hands, and then plop an Orson-sized pile of it on a plate in front of me. It was impossible to eat all that raw meat. When I didn't finish mine, he would actually be hurt. After dinner, we would have brandy and watch the great Arizona sun go down in the west— Orson became morose and depressed at sunset. Then he would work all night on the script that we were shooting, just pages ahead of the shooting. I realized that we needed more people to help Orson with his movie, which he was paying for out of money from under his mattress, literally.
0: You may have heard of or watched The Other Side of the Wind fairly recently. Though it would remain unfinished for decades, long past Wells' death, in 2018, it was reconstructed and released on Netflix by a team led by Bogdanovich and Frank Marshall. Marshall, then Polly's house guest, came to work on the movie at her invitation, as did Neil Canton, the producer who would go on to Shepard, the Back to the Future trilogy. As Frank recalls...
3: Orson felt sorry for her, and had he called her and said, why don't you come down to Arizona and... I'm making this movie, come down and help me. And she turned to me and said, do you want to go? And I said, yeah, of course.
2: These boys were young and all worshipped Orson and were willing, as I was, to work for nothing on the film, just for the chance to watch the great genius at work. We all basically stayed at his enormous mansion in Carefree because Orson only wanted to shoot at Magic Hour, the 20 or so minutes of gorgeous light that comes directly after the sun sets. We often slept there due to the late night shooting. Orson would make dinner for all of us after we finished. There was free time, as we shot on Orson's idiosyncratic schedule. Orson wrote on an old typewriter all night, wandering the huge rooms of the mansion. By day, he would stand at the balcony and look down into the front drive where we were all working and yell at me to go to the store and pick up a whole box full of cans of tapioca pudding along with the steak tartare. I can't tell you how many times I went to the grocery store to get these items. Also, a lot of brandy and coffee, which Orson lived on night and day. I never saw him eat anything, yet he was huge. The only way I knew that he consumed all the cans of tapioca pudding was that one morning, when all of us were sitting in his kitchen eating breakfast, Orson charged in, furious, and demanded to know who had eaten up all the tapioca pudding. He ranted and raved about the tapioca pudding, and we were all looking at each other thinking the same thing, that none of us would eat that damned canned tapioca pudding and that Orson had eaten it all. He was ashamed of it, so he was trying to blame us for it. Obviously, it was insane. But I was recovering from heartache, and Orson was infinitely helpful about that. He said, You're not unhappy. You would only be unhappy if Peter had left you for a woman as intelligent as you are. Don't you know that Peter would rather be unhappy with Sybil than happy with you? Then he would laugh uproariously. It was infectious. I laughed too.
0: Wells, of course, had his own younger mistress, Oya, and now he was building much of a movie around his obsession over a beautiful woman who had drawn his attention away from his wife, Paola Mori, who was the mother of his daughter Beatrice. According to Polly, Wells was willfully blind to the ways in which he himself was being cuckolded.
2: Often at night after a day of work, we would all sit around as a group and listen as Oya read to us from the novel she was writing. Orson was the most effusive. Brilliant! He would assert, clapping, when she read her scenes to us. I didn't find them brilliant at all and wondered why he pandered to her. She was writing her novel about a young woman who was living in Arizona with her old lover, who at the same time was having an affair with the Russian man who was teaching her how to ride a horse. What Orson didn't know, but I did, was that Oya was, in fact, having an affair with the Russian man who was teaching her how to ride. His name was Simonov, and Oya used to go riding every day with him. She and he would go into the tack room and make mad love on the horse blankets. Sometimes I would go out riding with Oya, and I had to ride around alone in the desert until they were done. I rode along, dreaming of the work I was going to do on my next picture. She would tell me about how they went into a cave in the desert and made love there, and then next day or so, the lovemaking in the cave would show up in her novel. Oya and I had great times. She was very glamorous, and she taught me how to use makeup and put in a few false eyelashes to make myself prettier. We would go out to the local bars, dress to the nines, and dance together to the country western music. I continued to recover there, gathering my strength renewing my faith in my ability to do good work. I even took flying lessons, enjoying the cool, empty skies above carefree. I wanted to do dangerous things. The adventures of Orson and Oya made me start living again.
0: Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service— the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So, do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. 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 netsuite.com/remember.
3: You know, the, looking back on all of this, Karina, when, when you look at the movie now and when I think back and Oya was always naked and I was, who knows what was going on. <laughs> you know, I was innocent.
0: While Polly was still working for Orson as a production designer and serving as companion and confidant to Oya, Peter arrived on the other side of the wind set to shoot what was initially a small role in the film, although eventually Bogdanovich would become the movie's co-star, alongside fellow director-slash-actor John Huston. After all that had happened, Peter still believed in Polly's taste, and he sought her counsel on a script he had been offered to direct for a comedy starring Barbara Streisand and her then-boyfriend, Ryan O'Neill. The film had passed through several incarnations, and now Peter saw it as a throwback to the screwball comedies of Howard Hawks. But Streisand felt uncomfortable with the whole idea. When he had set up a screening for her of two classics of the genre, The Lady Eve and Bringing Up Baby, Barbara reportedly hadn't made it to the second movie, and Peter was starting to doubt himself.
2: I was excited that he was thinking of doing a comedy. But as I stood there talking to him, it was terribly hard to grasp what had happened to our marriage. Here we were talking about his career as if we were still married, but we weren't. It was over, but not over. Peter told me that he still loved me. He knew because when he thought of Sybil dead, it didn't make him sad. But when he thought of me dead, he wanted to cry. He brought me the Streisand script for my perusal, and I found it truly terrible. It had Streisand playing this nagging yenta. I told Peter that one solution would be to reverse the roles, give Ryan the nagging part and Barbara the irresponsible role, and then it might be tolerable. Peter liked my idea and said, if they like your idea, it'll be my idea. I laughed, and so did he. They liked my idea, and the script got better.
0: Holly would become the production designer for Peter's next two films. And for a long time, I wondered how and why she decided to go back to work for the man who had cheated on her in humiliating fashion and had ultimately left her alone to raise two little girls. The answer to that question, in the case of both What's Up Doc and Paper Moon, has much to do with the powerful, charismatic stars of those films— who had a lot of influence over these productions. Barbara Streisand had won the Best Actress Oscar in 1969 for her first film, Funny Girl, and her subsequent three movies had all been hits. By the time she became attached to What's Up, Doc, she had the power of a producer. Because she had loved the way the last picture show had looked, she asked for a meeting with Polly. Polly, of course knew by now that Peter was on board to direct the movie, but she had an incentive to push aside any potential awkwardness inherent in working with a man who had left her for another woman. Polly was not a member of the Art Directors Guild, and until she was accepted into the Guild, it would be nearly impossible for her to be hired on any other director's union-crewed film. Her induction into the Guild... Would be a challenge. The Los Angeles branch, which closely monitored the use of art directors and production designers on all Hollywood studio films, had never to that point inducted a female member who worked in film. After the last picture show, Polly
2: started trying to become the first. I knew if I got the job designing this big Streisand picture, no one could keep me out of the Art Directors Guild. Gene Allen, the then president of the Art Directors Guild, had told me that I would never get work in Hollywood because I was just the wife. I was desperate. It was a sickening situation for me since I wasn't the wife anymore. Not being a member in good standing in the Guild, I could not work on a union film. There would be fines and perhaps even a strike if they would hire me. So I went hopefully to my big interview with Streisand.
0: Polly flew from Arizona to Los Angeles to meet Barbara at her mansion. They sat in her kitchen, where the superstar made Polly s'mores as they talked over Streisand's previous films. Polly impressed Barbara, and she was offered the job of designing What's Up Doc. The Art Directors Guild has kept a paper trail of Polly's journey to becoming a member, and their own documentation suggests... That if Polly was exaggerating in her recollection that the Guild president had told her she would never get into their union because she was just the wife, she wasn't exaggerating by much. The Guild's files contain a document featuring a running log of Jean Allen's communication with Polly. And at the top of that document is a comment, dated June 24, 1971, describing her as, quote, Polly Platt, a wife of art director, implying that she wouldn't be working if her husband had not hired her. This was factually correct, but only because she wasn't in the Guild. It had nothing to do with Polly's talent or her work ethic. The same document claims that a few days later, Alan told a member of Bogdanovich's production company that, quote, there was no way... To induct Polly into the guild because, quote, woman was not qualified. Given that Bogdanovich was later required to submit an accounting of the days Polly had worked as an art director, Alan probably meant that Polly did not qualify for the guild because she had only art directed two films. But the phrasing, woman was not qualified, also seems to foreground her gender as a problem. Not only had this branch of the union never accepted a female film art director, but this female art director had the temerity to request credit as a production designer, meaning that she was claiming to be the head of her department, a manager of other workers, and the first and last word on all aspects of the look of the film. In 1971, not many women demanded that kind of recognition in the workplace, at least not in Hollywood. And men in power were liable to brand women who did as stepping out of their place. The casting director on What's Up Doc, Nessa Himes, would become one of Polly's closest friends.
1: Women were not in a position let's say, or politically it was not an issue that women were not being given a chance or not being taken, you know, seriously uh, past a certain point uh, in terms of what they knew, what they didn't, what they were capable of doing.
0: Polly's strategy was to attempt to kill the Guild's Jean Allen with kindness. Taking him to lunch and sending a thank-you note in what she called him inspiring and a brilliant designer. She also enclosed with this note her CV to bolster her argument that she did have the requisite experience to join the Guild. After the lunch, Jean described Polly in his notes as, quote, intelligent and talented. But two months later, he had not changed his mind about opening the doors of the Guild to her. On the question of her membership application on September 16th, 1971, Allen wrote, quote, Say no. Five weeks later, a distraught Polly called the guild offices, spoke to a receptionist, and, according to a memo about the call, cried on the phone and said, No one cares about me. All in all, Polly spent over six months trying to prove herself to the Guild so that she could get the credit she deserved as production designer on What's Up Doc. Finally, on November 30th, 1971, the executive board of the Society of Motion Picture Art Directors met and discussed the applications of two female art directors, Polly Platt and Toby Rafelson, both of whom had worked in a non-union capacity on an independent film directed by their husbands and were now seeking to join the Guild in order to be properly credited as production designers on those same directors' follow-up films. Polly's candidacy was discussed at the Guild's general membership meeting on January 25th. And on January 31st, 1972, Alan wrote a letter to Polly, welcoming her as, quote, Our first female film production design member, noting that your application received the unanimous approval of those in attendance at our recent membership meeting. What had changed between September, when Alan's verdict on Polly's membership was a firm no, and January, when she was unanimously voted in? One answer is that the last picture show was released and was not only a box office and critical hit but was also widely praised for a striking aesthetic that was hard to ignore. The veteran art director Tambi Larson said as much at the January Guild meeting, where he stood up and spoke in support of Polly's membership. Another boost to Polly's acceptance may have been the application of Toby Rafelson, another very talented production designer who to that point had only worked with her then husband, Bob Rafelson, who had produced the last picture show through his company, BBS. It appears that earlier in nineteen seventy one the guild tried to dismiss Polly as unqualified. but when Toby came along with a similar set of circumstances and her own strong case for guild membership, the accomplishments of both women demanded attention in the end. Polly's application was approved just in time for her to be credited on What's Up Doc, and Toby's was approved a few months later so she could be credited as the production designer of The King of Marvin Gardens. I talked to Toby Rafelson about some of the similarities between her life and career and Polly's. It's hard to get
1: into a union, and yet you can't really, if you're going to work on studio films you you can't do it unless you're in a union. You you're not allowed to. They can't even hire you. We were both the wives of of directors which may have had something to do with it. It certainly had to do with why we worked with on their films to begin with. Bob always uh, liked my taste and 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 my judgment about things in that area. So he he brought me to the Set of the monkeys actually when they were shooting and asked me to work with the set designer. Um, and that person was not happy about that at all. You know who was this wife who is suddenly being thrust upon him? I I felt a lot of approval from Bob, although the extent to which he expressed it may have been limited. But the very fact of his giving me that work and the fact that he trusted me, which he always let me know, yeah uh, was 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 very gratifying. We weren't just husband and wife, mother and father, householders, supporters of our life together. We were actually working together and producing something together. And it was... It undoubtedly made me feel more valued or more valuable. And particularly for women, that's tremendously important, since the the other work that they do as women doesn't seem to make the same impression in terms of its value. I never felt that I had to... that I needed women's lib. I understand the reason for it but I personally didn't didn't feel that I I needed it. And maybe that was true for Polly too and maybe oh, these men married us partly for that reason because they respected us and women want to be respected. You know, they they they're not for the most part. Men are, women are not. So to to gain respect it, becomes a very uh, treasured thing. And when you're given the chance to earn it, uh, and, and you get it, it, it's incredibly empowering. So you could say, well, but you both obtained through men. You both obtained through your husbands. Yes, it's true. But it was not the little woman and the big men. It was really a, a partnership in both cases. Polly and I had that in common, and it wasn't really something that we got a chance to talk to each other about, which was another thing I would have enjoyed, actually. You know, I, I would, I would love to have sat around with her and dissed our husbands or men or you know the the whole man woman kind of thing, woman working with the man, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah.
0: Toby would work on three films with Bob, the last being Stay Hungry, on the location of which Bob had an affair with the film's female lead, Sally Field. By the time the movie was released, Bob and Toby had separated. Toby hadn't worked for other directors to that point, and she never worked with Bob again.
1: He wanted me to be his production designer on the next film he did.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, I didn't want to be around him anymore because one of the things that that fell to me when I did work with Bob was having to handle all of the other people he wasn't treating so well. And, and, I mean, I was like, in that sense, a co-producer. I was trying to keep... Everybody going, and I was trying to explain him to them, and I was trying to make them feel better. But mainly, it wasn't that part of the work so much. It was that I just didn't want to be around him. I I wanted to separate myself from him and and his identity and his orbit as, as much as I could for my own protection, really. I I had to deal with my own feelings about what was going on, and I couldn't do them and work with him. That That would have been too much. So Polly managed to do that, and I don't know how, except that her work was probably very important to her, and so she continued it.
0: Polly had cut her teeth as a production designer working with Peter, in a collaboration in which her opinions were taken seriously, as was her knack for visual storytelling. Peter's trust in Polly's instincts hadn't ended with their marriage. On What's Up Doc, he took her visual suggestions
2: seriously and allowed them to change the story. I was unhappy with the locale of the film as written, which was Chicago seemed to me to be a city that differed very little from New York except for the Big Lake. I didn't want to see the character Streisand was playing, an irresponsible and impossible creature, in Chicago with her Brooklyn accent. I wanted to get her out of the East Coast, where the character could be an outsider. And strange to say, Chicago didn't feel like a funny place to me.
0: Leaving her daughter's home with a nanny, Polly hit the road, visiting Seattle, Dallas, Houston, and other cities— trying to find the right locale for a modern screwball comedy. Nothing seemed right. In every city, at every hotel, there were messages waiting for her from Peter. The movie couldn't move forward until she found a place to set it. At every stop, she told him she hadn't found it. Then Polly arrived in San Francisco.
2: I stayed at the Hilton Hotel which was the first hotel I'd ever been in that had an escalator in the lobby. The colors of the hotel were garish and funny and pretentious. I was definitely interested in this hilly, ricky-ticky town. I adored the ups and downs around me everywhere and the huge bay, with its bridges and passenger ferries. From my hotel room, I called Peter and told him I had found the city.
0: A huge portion of What's Up, Doc is devoted to a chase sequence— which loops all over the city of San Francisco. Polly found all of the locations for the chase, and Buck Henry rewrote the script around these locations. Then Peter, in consultation with Polly, figured out how to maximize the comic potential of each location.
2: I found all the locations for the San Francisco shoot, and Peter flew up to look at what I had chosen. We had the perfect collaboration, as he loved every idea I had. We both stayed at the Hilton Hotel and had dinner together. We were walking through the hallways after a successful day, and each of us headed into our respective rooms across from each other. We lingered outside, holding hands. After all, we were still married. I went into mine, and Peter went into his, and before I knew what I was doing, I undressed, threw my trench coat over my nakedness, and went and knocked on Peter's door. He was ready for me, and we made love. I remember the phone ringing afterwards as I lay on the double bed. I realized that Peter was talking to Sybil. Victory. For a brief moment, I got to be the mistress, and she was the wife.
0: Polly also had what she described as a great collaboration on set with Streisand, who liked to be involved in every choice about the look of her character. Luckily, She and Polly bonded over a garment in Polly's wardrobe that Barbara loved, her trench coat. Polly went out and bought several versions of her own trench coat for Streisand's character to wear in the movie. Though she had less than a handful of films under her belt at this point, Streisand's reputation for perfectionism had preceded her. Polly didn't find her difficult to work with at all, but she also quickly figured out how to speak Streisand's language. Polly brought Barbara into the process, listened to her ideas, and got Barbara to listen to hers in turn. Polly's bond with Barbara would prove to be important, because otherwise, Streisand was unhappy making the film. She didn't think the material was funny, although she was extremely funny in it, and she and O'Neill's fling soured during production. Of course, Polly was in her own, emotionally-wrenching
2: situation. I was able during this time to work with Peter very well, without regret and sadness. I wonder today how I did it. There was no doubt in my mind that this film would make me independent of Peter, and I would be able to get into the Guild somehow and get work with other directors. But others have told me that I was fundamentally sad during that time of working with Peter.
0: Peter's sense of self-worth became more inflated when, in the middle of the What's Up Doc shoot, The Last Picture Show was released and earned almost universal rave reviews.
2: Peter got to read all his great press. It was a heady experience to be part of a hit movie. I went to one of the openings of The Last Picture Show with Ryan O'Neill and Peter as my dates the makeup and hair people in the What's Up Doc makeup trailer did a job on my face and my hair. I looked pretty. We rode in a limousine to the opening, and when Ryan got out of the limo there were the screeches and screams from his fans out in the street. I still have a picture of me stoned on Ryan's marijuana leaning against him. We made it into the gossip columns for a second. I was, sadly, pleased at the attention I got. Pleased to be with two such distinguished-looking men, one of them my husband. How odd it all was. Peter and I were getting along as well as ever. I don't know where Sybil was. I know that if she had been in town, I wouldn't have been invited at all. When Sybil was in town,
0: Polly was again shut out of Peter's social circle. So she found a new circle...
2: There were over 30 stuntmen working on What's Up Doc, and since I was very alone in the location shooting in San Francisco, I quickly discovered what fun they could be at the bar at the Hilton Hotel where we all stayed, all of us except Peter, who I was sure was shacked up with Sybil every weekend. And I started to have drinks after shooting with the stuntmen, every one of them handsome and macho. I loved sitting and drinking martinis with all these experienced, physically fit young men my age... I also had great fun with Laszlo Kovac's camera crew, all of them drinkers like me. I was simply anesthetizing the pain I felt about Peter and Sybil in the sweet forgetfulness of alcohol. It worked very well. Drinking helped me through a very painful time.
0: Later, Polly would remember joking about her situation with Peter with the What's Up Doc crew, defanging any gossip by saying things like, I don't blame Peter. If I were a man, I'd leave me for Sybil, too. Their pre-production fling aside, if Polly had hoped that reestablishing a creative bond with Peter would lead to a romantic reconciliation, she didn't get what she hoped for. After What's Up, Doc, Polly returned to the outpost house, where Antonia and Sashi were waiting for her.
2: Life was no longer a glamorous round of creative work and shooting film. It was crying babies and dirty laundry. I had visitors very rarely. Larry McMurtry came and stayed a few days. Frank Marshall came once in a while, which was very kind of him. Basically, the phone never rang. All our famous friends were Peter's friends now. It is an old story. Peter called more often than anyone else, but it didn't make up for how empty my life was. Often he called to brag about his sexual conquests of other women besides Sybil. Apparently there was a list out there in Hollywoodland of all the starlets who would willingly have sex with a man of importance if he took her out to dinner. Peter was interested in this list. Also there were girls, poor girls, I think, at UCLA who for $1,000 would have sex with any movie maker. Peter enjoyed that, too. Or at least, he told me about it. I am ashamed to say that it pleased me that he was not being true to Sybil, but I was damn lonely. My life was empty. In early 1972,
0: The Last Picture Show was nominated for eight Oscars. Four of them went to actors in the film, including 23 year old Jeff Bridges. Peter got two nominations for directing and writing, the latter of which he shared with McMurtry. Polly was not nominated, but she did benefit from having designed the hit film du jour. Ryan O'Neill convinced director Bud Yorkin to hire Polly as production designer on a movie called The Thief Who Came to Dinner which shot in Houston at Polly's suggestion. The film was a caper dramedy about a corporate drone turned cat burglar. And Polly thought Nouveau Riche Houston was the perfect setting. This meant leaving young Sashi and Antonia again. Polly took this job because she wanted to work. Right away, Houston was a minefield.
2: I had a new admirer on location, the director, Bud Yorkin. He was married, and I had met his wife. He became pretty aggressive. In the hallway of the Shamrock Hotel in Houston, he would pull on my arm, trying to get me to go into his room with him. At one point, I got so tired of it, I went into his room and threw myself down on his bed and told him to just go ahead and do it. He was not happy and said, You're just going to lie there? That's not the way I want it. So that was that. I must say I suffered after that as he became angry that I rejected him. I almost got fired. What had happened
0: between Polly and the director behind Closed Doors was one thing. But there was tension between the two on set that was plain to see. Frank Marshall worked on the film as a location manager.
3: She was such a strong force of nature on the creative side. You know, she had very strong opinions. Yeah, it did not go down well. You know, and, and she was so used to working with Peter and him respecting and listening to her and, you know, and evaluating and then deciding to do what he would do, but a lot of times she couldn't even be heard, at least on that movie. She was pretty out front about it. I mean, you know, she would say things in front of everybody. I think it sort of challenged who was in charge and... uh they got into huge arguments a lot, and I, you know I do think she she would take on this world. You know, talk about it's, it's hard today for women. It was really hard for women back then. I mean, there were no there was nobody rocking the boat like she did. Not that it needed to be rocked, but she, you know, it was unusual for a woman to have her kind of creative input at that time.
0: A decade later, in a seminar at AFI, Polly reflected on the difficulties she faced working with
2: directors other than her ex-husband. I used to say I screwed my way to the top, and I used to make all kinds of jokes because I was married to the director. But now I've made so many films without Peter, and I discovered that I was quite spoiled because I got everything I wanted, and I had an enormous influence on the pictures he did Who he cast, influence in terms of the instigation of the making of a film.
0: Polly would soon start to make a name for herself as someone who spoke their mind, without thinking about Hollywood politics, without worrying about hurting feelings. And that alienated people. um, This is Polly's friend, the writer, Nancy Griffin. Especially for a woman who was coming up in the 70s. In the, in the movie business, I, I think that was not necessarily acceptable because she was a disruptor. But as tough as she might seem in an on-set argument with a director like Bud Yorkin, Polly was still hurt by the end of her marriage and the way that she felt she had been shut out of the gang that had made The Last Picture Show the great movie that it was. While Peter was on an extended victory lap... With Sybil on his arm, Polly was on the outside, looking in. The Academy Awards ceremony happened while Polly was shooting in Houston, and she watched the ceremony in Ryan O'Neill's hotel room. Ryan and Polly had a flirtatious friendship, and in her memoir, Polly admitted to having an enormous crush on the actor Polly doesn't admit in writing to an affair exactly but she does say that Ryan liked to blow dry her hair for her whatever intimacy she had with O'Neill Polly needed it that night
2: Needless to say it was torture for me to see Peter arrive with Sybil that should have been me there she was one of the presenters as well The most touching event of the show for me was when Ben Johnson won his Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor.
3: I'd like to mention some people that has made this all possible. Mr. Peter Bogdanovich, the director of The Last Picture Show, his lovely wife, Polly, Mr. John Ford.
0: Polly was incredibly moved to be recognized by someone at the Academy Awards, even if not by the Academy. And she thought it was brave of Ben to refer to her as Peter's wife, right there in front of Sybil. But it was small solace.
3: She was tough on the outside because she kind of had to be in a man's world, but she was extremely vulnerable and took everything to heart. She was, you know... She got hurt pretty easily, you know. Um, yeah, it was it was tough on the outside and vulnerable on the inside. You know, she had a, she had a hard shell, but it would crap.
0: After finishing her work on the thief who came to dinner, Polly went back to Los Angeles, back to her lonely life as a single mom to two small children. Peter continued to call her often enough that she held on to hope that they might get back together. During one of these calls, Peter mentioned a script he had been asked to direct. It was called Addie Prey, and it was an adaptation of a novel about a feral orphaned girl who travels Depression-era America with a Bible salesman-slash-grifter. Robert Evans at Paramount had greenlit the film, and it was Peter's job if he wanted it. Bogdanovich sent Polly the script along with an affectionate note. He was essentially asking his estranged wife to give him a reason to make the movie. And she had one Tatum O'Neill. Eight year old Tatum, who was named after jazz pianist Art Tatum, was the daughter of megastar Ryan O'Neill. But she had hardly been spoiled or pampered. When her parents separated in 1966, just after Ryan had become a star on Primetime Soap, Paid in Place, Tatum and her brother Griffin lived on a dilapidated ranch in the valley with their mother, Joanne Moore, a former actress who had become addicted to amphetamines as a studio starlet of the 1950s, whose life now revolved around pills, booze, and dangerous men. In Tatum's memoir, She describes being violently punished by both parents, but her mother was more neglectful, taking her small kids with her to bars or leaving them to their own devices while she partied with a teenage boyfriend who molested Tatum. Eventually, Tatum was able to escape the chaos of her mother's life to live with her father in Malibu. That was almost equally chaotic, When Ryan wasn't away working, he was partying hard with a revolving door of girlfriends. But it put Tatum in the right place to be seen by Polly Platt.
2: Occasionally, Ryan would invite me to his beautiful house on the Pacific Ocean with my two children for a Saturday party on the beach. I used to see Tatum at these parties, and as I watched her, with her low, gravelly voice trying to charm her father... I thought to myself, if I were casting a picture, I would cast Tatum in the movie.
0: Now there was a perfect part to cast Tatum in. And to convince Peter, Polly read aloud from the script in an imitation of the eight-year-old's unusually husky drawl. Peter got excited and decided that Tatum's father, What's Up Doc co-star Ryan O'Neill, would be perfect casting for Addie's father figure.
2: Peter picked up the phone right away and called Bob Evans. Evans apparently barked at Peter that he would never use Ryan O'Neill in one of his pictures because Ryan had had an affair with Evans' then-wife, Allie McGraw. I remember telling Peter that Evans would change his mind about it, and I was right. Peter was such a hot director after the success of What's Up Doc and The Last Picture Show. Bob Evans had to swallow his pride and do as Peter asked. And the run-up to
0: making this movie... Peter started calling and coming around more. He'd show up at night to help Polly put the girls to bed, and they'd sing Home on the Range as a lullaby, because it was the only song Polly could sing in harmony. These bucolic family moments would drive Polly crazy, because she knew they weren't real. They weren't a happy family, because Peter was living elsewhere with another woman.
2: I cried a lot when he was there. I cried about Peter not loving me enough to leave Sybil. I argued with him about his affair, telling him that I was his wife and these were his children. We were not creatures on celluloid. We were flesh and blood people. I cried so much that Peter feared I would try suicide. And at his and his mother's request, I went to see a psychiatrist who only talked to me about my father. I couldn't see what my father had to do with my marriage to Peter and only went once. I was simply heartbroken. My fantasies that Peter would come to me and tell me that he had made a terrible mistake and that he wanted me back were just that fantasies. Feeling this way, Polly decided
0: that she didn't want to work with Peter anymore. It would be too painful. She went to his office for a meeting with Peter and Ryan O'Neill to tell them she was out.
2: I felt that everyone would be looking at me, everyone on the crew and feeling sorry for me that my husband had left me for Sybil. I didn't want to be seen as someone who was carrying a torch for my husband, even though I knew it was true that I was. Ryan argued in his wry manner. With you, I figure Peter is a ten. Without you, he is a four. Peter and I laughed, but Ryan meant it. He said, if I crawl on my hands and knees and beg you to do the movie, would you? Ryan O'Neill, who it must be stressed...
0: Was behind only Clint Eastwood as the biggest male movie star at that moment, then got down on the floor and started crawling towards Polly. Polly had to laugh.
2: I was stunned, impressed, and embarrassed. I said I would do the picture if Sybil never visited the set. I didn't want that humiliation. Peter agreed to my terms and I was set to do another movie with him.
0: As usual, Polly's first task as production designer was to scout for locations. Once again, Polly thought the place where the story had been set wasn't right for the story.
2: The script was set in Georgia, and I flew there with my location manager and friend, Frank Marshall. I found Georgia to be a land of pine trees, It felt completely wrong to me, these forests in Georgia. I somehow pictured this ill-matched pair, Ryan and the little girl played by Tatum, to be tiny against a vast sky, which would emphasize their extreme isolation from the comforts of home. I thought that would be more powerful visually. I kind of knew it, really. It was Kansas, that flat land with its vast grassy plains and enormous sky— There would be an occasional windmill or lonely house on the top of an infinitesimal rise. It was perfect.
0: Peter looked at the beautiful color photographs Polly brought back from Kansas and agreed that it was the right location for the movie. These color photographs also helped convince Polly and Peter that the movie needed to be shot in black and white. This would allow them to evoke the austerity of the Depression without having to depict stale depression visual tropes like bread lines. And another photo of Polly's led to the film's new title.
2: I had an old photograph of my father sitting in a big quarter moon with a woman who was not my mother. I was always very curious about this picture. Who was that woman? I showed the photo to Peter and suggested a scene in the carnival where Tatum wants her father to sit with her in the paper moon booth to have her picture taken. But he never shows up because he's so busy chasing after a hoochie-coochie dancer. Peter loved this idea, and we decided it would be a good title for the picture. Much better than Addie Prey. Peter decided to have a scene in the car where Tatum sings along with an old rendition of It Was Only a Paper Moon. Collaboration was dreamy. I loved it. While on location, I missed my children very much. They were in my home in Los Angeles with their nanny. I made a terrible mistake. I felt that if I called them up every day, it would just remind them that I wasn't there. I elected not to call them at all. Incredibly wrong. And so painful for Antonia. My oldest, four years old, who really missed me
0: which is not to say that Polly wasn't using her maternal instincts. They were being directed at the virtually motherless child she had cast in the movie. Tatum would later describe Polly as having been loving and motherly to her on set, and she needed it. Having been inconsistently schooled at best, she could barely read, and she had trouble sustaining her focus on the attenuated process of filmmaking. And Tatum's relationship with her father was difficult. Just like the character she was playing, the actress sought love and approval from Ryan and couldn't always distinguish between the fiction of the film and reality.
2: I can't believe how cold it was as we shot into the winter in middle America. Those winds just came screaming along those flat plains and froze us all. In between takes... I would zip Tatum inside my jacket to keep her warm, as she was wearing only a small summer dress that I had designed for her. I felt guilty that I was giving all this attention to Tatum, when my own two children were home and not getting any loving from me. Watching Tatum, who was only eight, being the center of attention while we were shooting, everybody looking at her during the takes because it is their job, I began to see how a child, or even an adult, could mistake this attention for love and adoration. How was a child to know all this attention was our job? I thought about how hard it was going to be for Tatum after the picture was over and she became just a little girl with a drug-addicted mother and a woman-chasing father, even though I had suggested that she get the part and felt responsible for what was happening to her on set. I felt that I had at least rescued her from her drug-addicted mother, I wondered about what an inflated sense of importance she might get. And I knew that eventually all the attention would be gone. And then she would just be a little girl again.
0: On the set of Paper Moon, Polly once again found herself providing emotional support to the director.
2: Every night during the first few weeks of shooting... Peter would call me up in my motel room and complain about the film and blame me for getting him involved in it. I could see from the dailies that the film was going to be very good, so I couldn't understand his anger about the film. What I didn't know was that Sybil was more than outraged by my insistence that she not appear on the set of Paper Moon, and that it caused a terrible rift between them. Peter thought I did this on purpose to break them up. I had no intention of any such thing, I was trying to protect my precarious dignity.
0: Peter had made good on his promise to ban Sybil from visiting the set, but he did not ban her from Kansas. He took a room for the duration of the location shoot at a different hotel than where the rest of the crew was staying so that he could spend the nights with Sybil in secret. Sybil spent her days in the room practicing her tap dancing for the musical she and Peter planned to make after Paper Moon. Because once this shoot was over, Polly and Peter would fully go their separate ways. And part of the reason for that had to do with another onset affair. This time, Polly's. Next week, we'll talk about that as well as the hard-fought credits Polly began to accumulate on some of the biggest movies of the 1970s, once the door was fully closed on her collaboration with Peter Bogdanovich. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with... Sashi Bogdanovich Frank Marshall Nancy Griffin Nessa Himes and Toby Rafelson. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio was edited by Tamika Weatherspoon and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, You must youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at Remember This Pod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to Patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. Or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher.